You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hackers for hire find criminal work during the pandemic. The U.S. Department of Energy is said to have taken possession of a Chinese manufactured transformer. U.S. President Trump may be considering an executive order about the legal status of social media. Contact tracing apps in France and the U.K. are scrutinized for privacy. Ben Yellen with the latest iPhone cracking case between the FBI and Apple. Our guest is retired CIA Master of Disguise, Jonna Mendez, on her book, The Moscow Rules. And Canada's Center for Cybersecurity assesses current risks, and Huawei's CFO loses a round in a Vancouver court. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, May 28, 2020. Google's Threat Analysis Group says that various hack-for-hire outfits, most of them based in India, are spoofing World Health Organization operators using thinly disguised Gmail accounts. The campaigns are for the most part spear phishing efforts, and they use COVID-19-themed fish bait. It's not entirely clear for whom the hired skids are working. Google's report comes wrapped in a discussion of how national espionage services are trying to take advantage of the pandemic, but the activity it ascribes to the hackers for hire, credential harvesting, identity theft, and so on, are at least as consistent with ordinary criminal activity. While espionage services have used criminal hired guns in the past, there's certainly enough conventional crime underway to keep the hirelings busy. By the way, a study by Inky finds that an awful lot of the COVID-19 phishing traffic in circulation seems to come from U.S. IP addresses. So we can all climb down off of those high horses, fellow Yankees. The U.S. Executive Order on Securing the United States Bulk Power System described itself as a cybersecurity measure, but was noteworthy for its concentration on hardware, including transformers, as opposed to the more usual concentration on networks. This seemed curious to many observers and prompted speculation that the risky foreign hardware the order was concerned to keep out of the U.S. grid involved the clandestine insertion of backdoors that could be used in subsequent attacks. A Wall Street Journal story may offer a partial explanation as to why this was so. Last summer, the U.S. Department of Energy diverted a Zhangshu Huapeng-produced transformer destined for Denver to Sandai National Laboratory, where it's been under study since, presumably for whatever security risk it represents. Neither the Department of Energy nor Honeywell, the contractor that runs Sendai National Laboratory for the department, 
was willing to comment to the journal, but Sandai has long been concerned with supply chain risks. According to the Wall Street Journal and others, President Trump is considering another executive order, one that would change legal protections social media companies currently enjoy under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The proposed measure would move toward treating social media platforms not as a protected public square, but rather as a monopoly that exerts substantial control over individual speech. The rumored executive order is generally being received as connected with Twitter's recent fact-check of a presidential tweet, in which Twitter added a fact-check link to two of President Trump's tweets about problems he saw with mail-in ballots. The fact-check link text was a restrained get-the-facts-about-mail-in ballots, and Twitter's CEO Jack Dorsey explained yesterday that, quote, This does not make us an arbiter of truth. Our intention is to connect the dots of conflicting statements and show the information in dispute so people can judge for themselves. More transparency from us is critical so folks can clearly see the why behind our actions. Quote. The National Assembly and the Senate yesterday approved Stop COVID, the exposure notification app developed for voluntary deployment to French users' smartphones. The CNIL, the National Privacy Watchdog Agency, had approved the app on Tuesday, according to SecureWeek, Euronews says that the contentious debate that surrounded the vote focused on privacy concerns and on getting assurances that Stop COVID would be independent of Apple and Google so big tech couldn't become Big Brother. Over in the UK, computing has been close-reading the National Health Service's Test and Trace website. What they've extracted from the text of the British government site isn't especially reassuring with respect to privacy protections, Sure, it's in beta, so take what comfort you may from that, but computing sniffs that the appearance of such Americanisms as personal identifying information suggests that the whole thing was rushed out. The site reads in part, quote, If you have had a positive test for COVID-19, we will ask for information about your illness, recent activities you did, and people you met whilst you were potentially infectious. If you are a contact of a person who tested positive, we will ask about your health and provide health advice to keep yourself and others safe. End quote. You can ask the government to delete your data, but you've got no absolute right to such deletion, and the government plans to hang on to your information for 20 years. Jana Mendez enjoyed a long and fascinating career in the CIA, including serving as Master of Disguise for the agency. Along with her husband, Antonio Mendez, she's co-author of the book The Moscow Rules, which describes some of the cat-and-mouse games played between U.S. and Russian intelligence agencies throughout the Cold War. Tony had been writing down the rules over the years. There was, he didn't make them up. We didn't invent them. They, they were just out there. They were the things that you knew or you would learn if you were getting ready for an assignment to Moscow. It was the, the, the strategy and the tactics for how you would comport yourself, how you would carry yourself in order to be able to do your job. This was a terrible place to work. There was so much surveillance on us. It was suffocating. Our job was to collect intelligence. The KGB's job was to keep us from collecting intelligence. So it was a really hard place to work. Tony had been just just jotting down as he would would recognize them or think of them, uh, the Moscow rules. It was a running list. And at the same time, Tony 
got Parkinson's. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's, which is a very slow but deadly disease. So it's like once you find out that you have it, there's a clock ticking. You don't know how long this is going to last. And that was sort of the impetus to maybe put this in writing. Well, let's go Let's go through some of them together. Can you share some of the rules that uh, are specifically applicable to uh, the spy craft that you were all using while you were over there? You've got to, you've got to know your enemy. You know, have to know the opposition and their terrain intimately. And if you don't, it's not going to, it's not going to work because they know it. Now, this is, this is for Moscow. So we would have our officers in training for over a year before they went to Moscow and we'd hand them a map like on day three. Here's a map of the city. You have to learn this map. You have to know every subway stop. You have to know how the city works because you're going to be on foot. You're going to be out there in that city. You're going to walk more than you've ever walked in your life. <laughs> Another rule was was about listening to your gut. Never go against your gut. That's a Moscow rule. And what that meant to a CIA officer in Moscow is if you were if you were within 100 yards of the meeting place where you were going to step forward and your agent was going to be sitting on a park bench and you were going to actually have a face-to-face meeting with him, if you had surveillance at that moment, your agent was basically going to die. They would arrest him and they would execute him. And they did that over and over. We lost a lot of agents. So at CIA, never go against your gut meant you can always abort. And there's no shame in it. And nobody is going to try and second guess you. If you come back to the office and say, it didn't feel something, something was wrong, something was off, that's a perfectly adequate reason to not, you know, move forward. But at CIA, you were obliged to do that because you, you really were playing with people's lives. That's retired former CIA operative, Jana Mendez. The book is titled The Moscow Rules. There's more of my interview with Jonna Mendez in this week's episode of Hacking Humans. Check it out. Canadian security authorities warn that foreign intelligence services are exploiting the pandemic. The CBC reports that Canada's Centre for Cybersecurity, a unit of the communication security establishment, has issued a cyber threat bulletin in which the centre offers an overview of how cyber threats have been shaped by the COVID-19 pandemic. The bulletin is dated April 27th, but was posted only this Tuesday. The Center for Cybersecurity notes that the global health sector is under extreme pressure during the pandemic and that this has made it an even more attractive target for ransomware extortionists than usual. That same pressure has served to draw the attention of espionage services, who are interested not only in stealing intellectual property related to COVID-19 treatments, but in assessing the effects of the pandemic on adversaries' economies and military readiness. Both criminals and state espionage services have been using spoofed versions of Canadian government websites to collect information or install malware. The National Post reports that more than 1,500 such bogus websites have been identified during the pandemic. The Centre also notes that state-sponsored threat groups are themselves facing staff reductions and adopting a lower operational tempo and seems to represent the center's assessment of the probable effects the global economic downturn is having on intelligence services. The bulletin mentions another probable effect of economic pain. Intelligence services may well turn to revenue-generating cybercrime to make up their budget shortfalls. 
Another caution in the bulletin pertains to expatriate and immigrant communities. These are likely to come under pressure as authoritarian regimes tighten their own domestic controls. The hostile influence campaigns the center alludes to are very much in the Russia disruptive style. The CBC observes that one such campaign has been active in Eastern Europe, where the Canadian-led battle group in Latvia has been fodder for rumors that it's a hotbed of COVID-19 infection. And finally, the Supreme Court of British Columbia yesterday ruled against Huawei CFO Meng Wazhao in her fight to avoid extradition from Canada to the U.S. The court found that the U.S. request met the double criminality standard, that is, the bank fraud and sanctions evasion the U.S. has charged her with, would be crimes if committed in Canada. Her next hearing will be in June, CyberScoop says. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, always great to have you back. Good to be with you once again, Dave. Uh, article uh, came by, this is from NBC News, uh, and it's titled, The FBI Cracked Another iPhone, But It's Still Not Happy with Apple. Uh, this is something you and I have been discussing over on uh, Caveat. Uh, this article is from Kevin Collier and uh, Cyrus Farivar, who, uh, who I've interviewed before. Um, so Apple has cracked another phone here. Uh, give us some of the details. So this case involves a shooting that took place in Pensacola, Florida, uh, last year. And it involved a Saudi Air Force officer 
accused of killing several classmates. Uh, the FBI was doing an investigation. They wanted access into this person's device. Apple, once again, as they typically do, told uh, the FBI to pound sand. We're not going to break <laughs> our own encryption for you. Uh, we're not going to help you with this. And the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, has uh, been a longtime advocate of these backdoors that would allow law enforcement to gain special access to these encrypted devices. Mm-hmm. The problem is that Apple keeps saying no, but the FBI keeps figuring out ways to get into these phones anyway. Mm-hmm. So, like, I sort of imagine somebody saying, I need a special lock to get into your house. Um, you need to produce that. Give it to me. It's for your own safety. But mm-hmm. then they're like, I've been able to get in every time I've needed to because, you know, I uh, picked the lock with my finger and then I found the, <laughs> gra- the, the garage came door in through opener. The window. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I came in through <laughs> right. the window. Um, yeah. It sort of, you know, begs the question naturally, why does the FBI need one of these back doors if they are able to get into these devices anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing noticeable uh, or notable about this article is that for once they actually found useful information on the device that they were searching. They found out that this terrorism suspect actually had ties to uh, international terrorist organizations like Al Qaeda. And mm-hmm. that, you know, I don't know how that's necessarily going to be useful for us going forward, but it's certainly useful information in the context of um, this investigation. So oftentimes they'll crack these phones and there'll be nothing on there. You know, it's like I tried to find out who this terrorist was communicating with and I got his, you know, Snapchat photos or something. But here we actually have useful information. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, the upshot of this is is Apple uh, has been steadfast in refusing to allow these back doors. Law enforcement keeps criticizing them, saying, you are jeopardizing public safety by not uh, giving us this access. Yet law enforcement keeps finding ways to get into these devices anyway. It's just a very interesting dynamic. Well, and and also, I think it's worth pointing out that that one of the points Apple is making is that we don't have a backdoor. We can't can't unlock this for you. The way we have built this technology, even we can't get in there. So stop asking. Stop asking and stop asking us to destroy the own security apparatus that we've created for our customers because we're not Mm going to do it. And yeah, I mean, as we've talked about a million times, uh, there's a reason Apple didn't create a backdoor. Uh, It's in the security interests of its users. It's also probably in the security interests of the government in the long term because these backdoors, of course, could make their way um, to bad actors, whether they be Mm -hmm. uh, state actors or non-state actors. You know, we're talking about a terrorism case. What if a terrorist organization figured out how to uh, breach these devices? So, you know, that's certainly something that's worthy of consideration. So from from a policy point of view, do you think this weakens uh, law enforcement's case that they need a backdoor? The fact that repeatedly they've been able to get what they need without one? I, I certainly think it does. Now, you know, they could say there's going to come a point where we're not able to crack the device. We're going to need critical information and we're going to need Apple's help. But until we actually find that case, and we really have not to this point any high profile case, then, you know, Apple's going to say, you've already figured it out without our help. Um, mm. So why don't you figure it out all by yourself? So I think, you know, that's going to be the takeaway coming from this incident as well. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, this cat and mouse uh, continues, right? Back and forth. Uh, it, it, it will, yeah. Feels like it's never going to end. We're, we're going to be in our 70s and there'll still be a battle going on between <laughs> the FBI and Apple. Right, right. 
All right. Well, uh, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. We'll be right back.